This is The Writer's Voice, new fiction from The New Yorker. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. On this episode of The Writer's Voice, we'll hear Gish Jen read her story, Detective Dog, from the November 22, 2021 issue of the magazine. Jen has published five novels, including World and Town and The Resisters, which came out last year, and the short story collection, Who's Irish? A new story collection, Thank You, Mr. Nixon, will come out in January. Now here's Gish Jen. Detective Dog No politics, just make money, Betty's mother Tina liked to say. And when it came to China, see nothing, hear nothing, say nothing. Do you hear me? I hear nothing, Betty had wanted to say sometimes, or well, many times really, but instead she'd said nothing and, as directed, made a lot of money. After all, she was the good daughter. And That was how it was that when Umbrellas took over Hong Kong, she had a nice place in Vancouver. And that was how it was, too, that when racism took over Vancouver, she could up and move to New York. It was convenient to be rich, you had to say. In New York, she didn't even have to buy an apartment. She and her husband and the boys just moved into her sister's old place, which they liked so much that they bought the apartment next door, and then the apartment on the other side, too. They figured they'd turn the extra kitchens into bathrooms. Buy another one, Betty's father, Johnson, bellowed over FaceTime from Arizona. Buy the whole floor. Johnson, who had always loved acquisition, had recently started a list called Ghost Towns of the World. One of these days, Betty's husband, Quentin, said Johnson was going to buy them all up, corner the market. Every time he says, too many people in China, I can hear his pitch, Quentin said with a hint of awe in his voice. He did think Johnson a genius. Now, people who don't like where they live can move somewhere else, no problem. Betty laughed. Does that mean there'll be a ghost town for us? Maybe. Quentin seemed to be considering this seriously. But never mind. Three apartments for four people is enough. Betty told Johnson now, smiling but firm. We are not buying any more. And when he continued arguing, she shrank him down from full screen to half. In Vancouver, her neighbors had complained about her. The Chinese are taking over, they said. The Chinese are buying up everything. That was when they weren't yelling, go back to where you came from. Betty had tried to reason with them. If she were the sort of Chinese who wanted to buy in Vancouver but not live in Vancouver, if she were the sort of Chinese responsible for Vancouver's empty houses and empty apartments, she wouldn't be standing right there for them to yell at, right? And she was not an invader, by the way. She was a parent who had worried that her 11-year-old would go out protesting on the streets with his friends. And then what? Then he would get tear-gassed, that's what. And, by the way, tear gas wasn't so great for the baby they'd adopted during the 2012 unrest either. But a Chinese was a Chinese was a Chinese to them. When people want to yell, all they could hear is what they want to yell, Tina liked to say. Which was why, after five years, Betty and her family had moved from Vancouver to New York, where all anybody said was, We are so happy you are willing to chip in for the new elevator, and did you know the building needs a new roof? Yes, she said, yes, yes, and anything else? 
Now in the gilt lobby mirror by the striped chairs, she looked happier to herself. A little plump, it was true. She did not like her chin joining up with her neck as if they just needed to be together. But she liked her short, short hair and her cheery cashmere hoodies, and look how she could just push her oversized sunglasses up onto her head. No puffy eyes to hide. When the Hong Kong police stormed the universities, she and her family just sat here in New York on their lilac leather couch and watched on their computers. Lined up like ladies at a hair salon. One, two, three, four. Even when COVID came, at least they worried about sickness and death, but not jail. Of course, Theo, now 17, was upset all the time. All his old Hong Kong friends were involved in the protests. Sometimes he thought he spotted them on his screen although it was hard to say for sure, because they'd grown up and because everyone was wearing gas masks. Really, it was crazy to take screenshots and zoom in the way he did, running his fingers through the long hair on top of his head and scratching the short hair on the sides. Is that Victor? Is that Pac? Don't you think that's Pac, he'd say, or that must be Wingman. I recognize that scar. Whether Theo would have been so riled up were it not for the ambulance sirens going and going was hard to say. It shook Betty up, too, that even nine-year-old Robert knew ventilator was spelt with an O-R. She was just glad he wasn't sure how to spell morgue. Although, imaginative and intense as he was, he was writing a story about dancing morgues for the mystery unit in his English class. It was a murder mystery, he told her, in his quiet, unnerving way. He was not like the other boys at all. The last story he'd written was about mind-reading hats that looked like regular fur hats, but then stole your thoughts right through your scalp. How they did it was the mystery. Betty herself almost never told stories, but having read a book about Western creativity growing up like a flower out of the soil of curiosity, she was trying to at least ask a lot of questions, and not just any questions, but the right questions, meaning not questions like, what do you mean you were out all night? Where were you? The sort of questions she was prone to ask Theo, but questions that showed interest, like, do the morgues ever stop dancing? Playfulness, too. She had underlined that in her book. She tried to ask questions that showed playfulness. Do the morgues ever stop dancing, she asked now? Yes, and when they stop, all the people are going to come out alive again, Robert said. He had what would have been a perfect bowl cut if he hadn't started trimming his hair himself. Now he looked as if he had been transitioning into Mark Zuckerberg, only to change his mind halfway. And then what? Betty asked. She relied a little heavily on, and then what, she knew, but she couldn't think of anything else to ask. Will they breathe okay? Yes, but they'll be a little dizzy, he said. Interesting. Another thing she said, too much, but oh well. And what will the people say? They'll say, it's great to be alive. What happened to my phone? He said. But... I'm not sure what the morgues will say back. He touched his tongue to his nose. He had a tongue like a dog's. How about, we're not responsible for personal effects, she said, thinking that he wouldn't know what that meant. But Robert, being an avid chaser of what he called true facts, did know. He retracted his tongue and laughed as he wrote, by hand, as he liked to, with a pencil. It's great to be alive what happened to my phone. We're not responsible for personal effects. What kind of a morgue are you? Didn't your mother teach you anything? No, we're the worst of the worst. Because of the virus, they had to scrape the bottom of the barrel. Betty laughed. Great, she said. I still have to figure out what the mystery is. The mystery is how this whole COVID craziness could be happening, she said. <laughs>
Robert's handwriting had deteriorated since he had come to the U.S., but if Betty had ever had the energy to nag him about it, she did not anymore. Remote learning. Robert's school theoretically went from 8.25 to 2.25, but that included 90 minutes of independent study, 30 minutes for lunch, and 30 minutes for recess. Why did the kids get a break when it was the parents who needed a break? And how could the teachers still be complaining about how much they worked? Why didn't they not even make the kids show their faces on Zoom? Right now, for example, Theo was playing Liberate Hong Kong on his computer while in trigonometry class at the same time. How could that be okay? You realize that stories about morgues are not normal, right? Theo said, looking up from his game. So, it's not normal to be jamming virtual surveillance cameras as if you were a real protester either, Robert said. I am so a real protester. The kind who shouts, Gaia, from the couch, you mean. If I were there, I'd be on the streets, Theo said. Not now during COVID, you wouldn't. Even now, I'd be there. And as soon as things really started up again, I'd be throwing petrol bombs. Don't worry. You can tell we're not really brothers, Robert observed the air. I would never say something violent like that. Adopted brothers are still brothers. Quentin's nostrils flared when he was being serious. And today, this did make the boy settle down. When Theo started up Animal Crossing with its desert islands full of protest banners, Quentin was even able to say, aren't you supposed to be in class? Theo switched sullenly back to full screen. But what Robert had said was true. He wasn't violent like his older brother. He didn't say the sort of things that made Betty and Quentin thank the Lord they were safely on the other side of the world, far away from what their friends in Hong Kong called protest trouble. This generation, they are like firecrackers. One explodes and then the whole string goes, they said in WeChat posts. And do they realize they are not dealing with a paper tiger? This is a real tiger with teeth. They're going to get themselves killed. There were friends who approved of the protests. I give my kids food every day to take with them to share. Bottled water is also important. And when they come home, I wash their clothes right away to get the smell out. But others wished they had got their kids interested in sports. Better for their health, better for their college applications, better for everything they wrote. However, you need to be athletic. You know what your grandmother always says, Betty told Theo? No politics, just make money. That's good advice. But although she had listened, Theo did not. Theo was her biological child, but his outrage reminded her of her older sister, Bobby. Bobby, who had unbelievably tried to send them a letter last week. After all these years... Betty was shocked and apprehensive, and maybe because she was worried, annoyed. Who sent real letters anymore, much less a letter via a personal family messenger? Only Bobby would somehow enlist Uncle Arnie through his Shanghai factory, as if they were all in a spy movie. She had apparently even instructed Uncle Arnie to hide the letter in his shoe, which he did not do in the end. He was afraid airport security would make him take his shoes off. Instead, he tore it up and flushed it down the toilet. Because he knew it was trouble, he told Betty later, and because he didn't want to upset Tina and Johnson. As for why he had even told Betty about the letter, he claimed it was because he was too honest. But Betty knew the truth. There was something in the letter that he couldn't keep inside. He swore he hadn't read the thing before tearing it up, but of course he had. He had. And where was Bobby, she demanded. Her parents had been desperate to know for years, she said. The whole family had. 
Uncle Arnie insisted that he didn't know. The letter and some instructions had been left for him in a plain envelope, he said, and the security cameras had found no trace of whoever sneaked it into the factory. Anyway, no politics, just make money. Isn't that what your mother always says? He finished. In other words, the letter had to do with politics. Probably, if she were Uncle Arnie, she too would have thrown it out. It was amazing how many things her mother's words could mean. To Theo, for example, they meant that Betty and Quentin were going to hell. Is that how you want to live your life, he yelled. Is that your motto, just make money? All it means is that that is the way to be safe, Betty said. It is like the tallest tree catches all the wind. That does not mean a short tree is a good tree. It means a tall tree pays a price for sticking up. She didn't know how to tell Theo that when a son yelled at a mother, the mother cried for a week. She kept that inside, though she was sure that Robert knew anyway. Never mind that he was the adopted child. Robert would shoot that quick look of his like a flash of light in the dark that could only be a signal. He understood her, while all Theo understood was his opinion of his family. I hate you, he would say, for example. I hate your values and your way of life, and I do not respect you. What have you ever done but look the other way no matter what was going on? Did you ever tell the truth? Did you ever speak up? No matter who was being killed and who was being jailed? You know what the word is for people like you? The word is complicit. I bet you don't care about the Uyghurs either. So he ranted, ranted and ranted, as if he had not been the first to complain when Betty said that because of COVID, there would be no maid and no cook. Even though there was pretty good takeout in New York and she knew how to make a few dishes herself, he had objected. And now every day, Theo brought up colleges farther away than the colleges they talked about before. Colleges in Alaska, Scotland, New Zealand. He wasn't applying until the fall, but still they discussed the possibilities constantly. How about a semester in Antarctica? Quentin suggested at dinner. There must be semesters abroad in Antarctica. Betty glared, but Quentin just winked and kept going. You can study penguins, he said, showing Theo an article on his phone. Did you know they poop out so much laughing gas that the researchers go cuckoo? They do, Robert said. Let me see. That's so cool. Theo, though, stood up without a single bite of the Oreo mousse cake Betty had made specially for him from a recipe he'd found and asked her to try. Should they buy one more apartment after all, for the sake of family sanity? Quentin and Betty talked it over, but just when they decided yes, Theo needed more space, more independence, more something, he got the hang of online poker. Betty had heard about online poker from her friend Susu. His son had made a lot of money playing it, which you wouldn't think would upset Susu, but did. Because once her son made a lot of money, she lost control of him, she said. She just hoped he wasn't doing drugs. Hearing which, Betty had shaken her head in sympathy. And later, when she told Quentin the story, she had said how glad she was that Theo was no good at math. Although sometimes a quick calculation can mean millions, Quentin pointed out. Still, she said, poor Susu. Poor Susu was right, Quentin agreed. And now it seemed that Theo was better at math than they thought. I underestimated myself, he said. I guess I did just need to work harder. And all I needed was to put more time into it time that he had now, thanks to COVID. It was hard to know whether to cheer or to worry when he won $100. Then he won $1,000. Then he lost $500. Thank God he learned a lesson, Quentin said. Macau, at least you have to book a hotel room to gamble. 
On the computer, you can gamble with no overhead. Terrible, Betty said. Then Theo won $5,000. Then he won $10,000. Then he won another $10,000. Beginner's luck, he said modestly. And to be sure that he didn't gamble away all that he'd won, he bought a car. A car, Betty said? How did you buy a car? With cash, that's how, Robert said, when Theo didn't answer. He'd picked a little red Miata with a pop-off roof. It got great mileage, he said, and Susu, too, said it was an excellent deal, a real COVID deal, which she knew because her son had co-signed the papers, which he could do because he was old enough, and which he had thought was okay because Theo had a license he'd got before COVID so that he could go visit friends in the suburbs. At least it's not drugs, Susu said. As for whether Betty and Quentin preferred Theo, angry or rich, they could not agree. It's as if his heart is hidden, disappeared under a blanket where no one can see it, Betty said, adding, I think he just wants to get away from us. Away from us? Quentin said, astounded. Susu says this is what 17-year-olds are like, especially in the U.S. They are separating. It's their psychological stage. Away from us? She didn't answer. And when do they stop? His question hung in the air like the kind of smog that used to drift down from the mainland and choke them. They tried to sleep. It did not occur to them that Theo would use his car to leave them. There he was, though, two days later, packing up. Where are you going? Betty asked. You cannot use our charge cards, Quentin warned. But having his own money now, Theo just knit his eyebrows and kept packing. One duffel bag, two, three. Children his age did not believe in suitcases. And the next morning, he really was gone. He made his bed, Quentin said quietly. Of course, they were shaken up anyway. But the bed, they hadn't even known that Theo knew how to make his bed. Complicit, he had called them. Complicit. And what was that he liked to yell? Betty remembered. I think it was, did you ever tell the truth? What truth, Quentin said. Betty kept it inside that she kept a lot of things inside. Instead, she asked Theo's bed, where are you, Theo? She asked the kitchen counter and the apartment buzzer, too, where are you, where are you? She did not tell any of her friends what had happened, nor did she post anything about it on WeChat. She told the school that he was sick. A fever and a cough, she said, no loss of taste, but they were having him tested. And yes, yes, of course, confining him to his room. The school was mostly interested in the confinement part of the story. Besides that, she and Quentin simply watched their chats and email, hoping. Theo would be back soon, they agreed, and just about any place was safer than New York, so that was good. If only they were among the friends on his Find My Friends app. He went to visit someone, they told Robert. But he was supposed to stay home, Robert said. Everyone is. You're right, Betty said he was. I hope he brought enough masks. I hope he's being careful. I hope he's using hand sand. She hoped, too, that Robert would know enough not to ask whom Theo was going to visit, and thankfully he did know enough. Instead, he said, I'm sick of COVID. I want to play soccer. I want to see my friends, and I want a new dog. Is there something the matter with Bong Bong? Betty asked. I want an upgrade. An upgrade? Quentin asked. I don't want another of the same kind of dog. I want like an original dog. He said this because Bong Bong was not their first dog. 
Bong Bong was a replacement dog they'd got after Yappy died. You might even say a carbon copy of Yappy, whom everyone in the family had loved. But of course, everyone had not included Robert, who hadn't been born yet, much less adopted. But he could see his point in a way. Still, an upgrade? What a way to think. When Robert had wanted to be paid for making his bed, they had paid him. Because the maid used to get paid, he had argued, and that was true. It seemed fair. Then he had wanted to be paid for getting out of bed in preparation for making it, to which Quentin said okay without even asking Betty. Now Robert wanted to be paid for brushing his teeth. Does your price include flossing? Quentin asked. Meanwhile, Tina and Johnson were so upset when they heard about Theo that Betty did not even tell them about Bobby's torn-up letter, much less that Bobby had once told Betty she had written the last letter, the way many of the Hong Kong dissidents had, just in case something happened to them. The letters declared that they were protesters and had not died by suicide, that being what they'd felt they'd had to write, given how many more people had been detained than were in jail, given, that is, how many people had disappeared. And later, Betty thought she should have told her parents all this during their FaceTime call. She should have. But at the time, she didn't see how she could. They were so busy reassuring her that Theo wasn't going to disappear the way Bobby had. He wasn't, they said. He couldn't, although five days? She should hire a pirate detective right away, the way they should have with Bobby, before she got too far away. Even after all these years, there was a catch in Tina's voice. One good thing is that it is very difficult to transport a Miata to Hong Kong, so Theo probably didn't go there, Johnson said. If you don't want to call a detective yourself, we can call for you, Tina said. In fact, we can call right now, Johnson said. It was all Betty could do to divert them to the topic of Robert's demanding to be paid for everything. Finally, though, Tina said, You know who gets paid for everything? Who? Betty said. American children, she said. And let me tell you, if you allow Robert to become American, you will regret it. Do you think so? Betty said. You will. Your mother is right, Johnson thundered. Become American citizen is great. Hold American passport is great. But do not let Robert get American ideas. You know what they are, those American ideas? Betty waited. 20th century, he said. They are 100% 20th century. As for whether she should have told her parents that what Robert wanted money for was to support black people, why would she do that? Knowing that they would have said, black people? Only Americans are so concerned about black people. But this is what happened when you sent children to school in New York. They joined the People of Color Club. No politics, Tina would have said, and Betty herself wanted to tell him, we are not people of color, Robert, we're rich. But unfortunately, he was the president of the club. Thanks to COVID, the kids had nothing else to do but to Zoom and discuss whether or not they were racist. As a result of which, Robert was elected president because everyone agreed that being of Chinese origin, he was probably the most racist. The Chinese are the worst, they said, to which Robert happily agreed. Betty was happy for Robert that he had found a kind of acceptance Theo never had at his age. Still, like Susu, she wished they could all have just stayed in Hong Kong. In Hong Kong, there was no people of color club because they were all the same color. And if you said bad things about white people, it wasn't racism, it was resistance, unless you said it to their faces. Then it was speaking truth to power. Now Quentin mused, if I pay Robert $5 to get up and $5 to brush his teeth 
At least he will have some pocket money and not take up poker. But Betty did not like Quentin's approach. In my opinion, it will make him as money crazy as everyone else in this family, including you, she said. Please, please do not pay him any more. But what is a mother but someone who cannot stop anyone? Before Theo left, they had noticed the ambulance sirens mostly going at night. Now that there was less yelling, though, the sirens seemed to go on all day as well. How long was this going to last, this New York on pause? And why was wearing a mask such a big deal in America? In Hong Kong, people didn't complain about their glasses fogging up. They just wore their masks and not in such a way that their noses stuck out. Of course, as Quentin pointed out, their noses were smaller, and flatter noses fit better under the masks. Still, Betty wrote to Robert's teacher, Could you give him some extra work? Because your homework about the Canarsi tribe of the Lenape people took him a half hour to complete. That was better than the gravity assignment, which took 15 minutes, but never mind. Please, we parents are going crazy. Of course, she knew that Miss Strange was just going to say what she always said to what everyone knew she called pushy Asian parents, namely, the curriculum is age-appropriate. And so she did, though this time she added that there would be no change to the no-grades-this-semester policy, no matter how much extra work the kids did which Betty couldn't really blame her for saying, since some of the Asian parents really were complaining. What's more, as Miss Strange herself complained, it had been everything she could do to shift her entire class online. Parents had no idea how stressful it was, she wrote, especially since she had three children, four dogs, no husband, and a phobia about technology, which is why she had gone into teaching to begin with. However, Just this one time, she would provide an extra credit assignment for interested students. Thank you, Betty typed. Thank you. For she really was grateful. If only the extra credit assignment was not to tell a family mystery to a pet. To a pet, Betty said? You have to tell a mystery to a pet? It doesn't have to be a real pet, Robert said. It can be an imaginary pet. And... Miss Strange said parents could help. Betty sighed. It was revenge. It was the revenge of Miss Strange. How about a story about your grandpa, Quentin said. How about a story about Yaya and Bong Bong meeting in heaven? Yaya could feed him people food, and Bong Bong could ask why he never got to eat food like that on earth. That's not a mystery, Robert said. It's a mystery to Bong Bong, said Quentin, at whose feet Bong Bong was even now sitting obediently, looking hopefully up at a cookie. His white tail thumped as if it had a special chip in it. And I don't want to use Bung Bung anyway, Robert said. Bung Bung is a lap dog. I'm going to use an upgraded dog. Like, Betty said. Like a German shepherd seeing eye dog, Robert said. Do you know what a seeing eye dog is? It's a dog with superpowers. And true fact finder that he was, he spoke with an air of authority. Well, a seeing eye German shepherd would make the story more interesting. Betty conceded. It was going to be a long homework session, she could see. Quentin left the room, having work to do, he said. How was it that he was now the boss of the business that she had founded over his strenuous objection? His bottom left an imprint on the leather stool seat, which was lilac to match the couch. The decorator had done that. What's the dog's name going to be? She asked, trying to be playful. His first name is Detective. And his last name? Dog. So, Detective Dog? 
Yes, his name is Detective Dog, and he's interested in missing people. Robert raised a big round magnifying glass to his eye, word of Quentin's, which he kept on the kitchen counter in case he ever wanted to do a crossword puzzle. Theo isn't missing, Betty said calmly. Theo is coming back. From his friend's house, Robert said. Yes. Robert gave her his quick look. Then he squinted down through the magnifying glass, which fit right into the gap he'd cut in his hair. I want you to tell me a mystery so I can solve it, he said. Betty sighed. With Theo gone, it was as if she and Robert were on a desert island in that Animal Crossing game, except that instead of protest banners, they had sirens. He was so quiet and intense, the whole apartment was quiet and intense. Is it my job to help you solve a mystery, or my job to tell you one, she asked, to tell me one. Are you sure that's what Miss Strange said? Yes. Betty sighed again. I don't know how good a mystery it will be, Detective. I'm not a storyteller like you. It doesn't have to be good, he said, and we can start today and finish tomorrow. I'll ask you questions. Well, okay. How could she say no? She thought, then began. Once upon a time, there was a number one daughter who everyone agreed was the best daughter in the family. Robert cocked his head. What do you mean, the best daughter? I mean that out of three sisters, she was the smartest. She got into all those top schools, Andover and MIT and Harvard Business School. In fact, everywhere she applied, she got in. She got an internship on Wall Street, and then she got a job on Wall Street. She was making a lot of money. But all of a sudden, one day, she dropped out and ran off with an American. And not just a regular American, a drummer. Why a drummer? I don't know. All I know is that when her family later heard that she had left the drummer, they celebrated. They had a dinner for her, even though she could not come. But after that, she disappeared completely. Like Theo? Theo has not disappeared, she wanted to say. Instead, she said, she went somewhere, no one knew where. For many years, her parents cried, and then one day, guess what? I saw her again. Are you in the story? Quentin came back into the kitchen for a bag of chips and not a lunchbox bag, but a large one, meaning, don't bother me. Are you in the story, Detective Dog asked again when Quentin left. Yes, Detective, she admitted. It was almost by mistake that I saw her a couple of years ago. We were about to move to New York, but we had a business in Kunshan and sometimes stayed in Shanghai, as you probably remember. In the French concession, where there are a lot of old European buildings and restaurants and cafes and yoga studios. Do you remember? He nodded. Shanghai was great. Betty smiled. It was. And, well, one day I went out to a cafe, and who did I see? She did not look the same as the last time I saw her. The last time I saw her, she had blonde hair and tattoos and a gas mask pouch. Now she had plain hair and plain clothes, as if she were in disguise. We had some coffee. Of course, she was surprised to see me, too. I waited for her to tell me what she was up to, but she did not tell me right away. Instead, she raised an eyebrow and tilted her head, meaning there were cameras everywhere. I told her I needed to stop my apartment, which I did, so I could forget my phone there, and no one could trace me with it. Then I met her in a park. I was not surprised to hear that she was trying to evade the police, because actually I had seen her once before, when she was involved in the protests in Hong Kong. You saw her before, but didn't tell anyone? Betty looked away. Why? 
because I promised. So you knew other people she knew who would have wanted to know. Betty hesitated but finally nodded. But you're telling me now. It's your homework, she said. Though what she really wanted to say was, because you'll find out one day I can see, because you are like a mind-reading hat, and because I don't want you to leave one day like Theo. And why didn't she want you to tell? Because the Chinese government likes to know all your family members, so if it isn't enough to pressure you, they can pressure them. Meaning, it was her family you didn't tell. She nodded. Who were your family too? She nodded. Meaning, she was your sister. Somehow it was a shock to hear it aloud. Yes, she said bravely. Who, you know, did not want to be in trouble anymore. Or at least that's what she told me. She said she had come to Shanghai to try to give up her dangerous work. In fact, she had been effective. Very effective, I think. She was so smart, and for a while she had believed things would work out. A lot of people did. So many people were involved in the protests. How could Beijing arrest them all? But now all she could think about was 2047, when Hong Kong would be swallowed up by the mainland forever. Of course, back when the mainland first started to rise up, we were proud to see Chinese people stand up to the West. Talk about bullies. The West always had to humiliate everyone. And by the way, now that Hong Kong needs help, do you see them? But in the end, the mainland turned on us too. They attacked us the way they fired on their own people in Tiananmen. Of course, you were a baby, so you didn't know too much about what was happening. I am a dog, he reminded her. Oh, that's right. I mean, you were just a puppy, she said. Playful, the way she was supposed to be. He gave a woof. You were only two and a half, but Theo never got over leaving his school and his friends, especially since he got bullied in Vancouver. That's why he became a bully himself. He's not a bully. And how was Shanghai going to help her give up her work? I think we should take a break here. Betty glanced at the oven clock. Time to start dinner. They made an American-style tuna noodle casserole with cream of mushroom soup. Then they played video games and looked for new recipes to try. Robert wanted to make peanut butter snicker cheesecake whoopie pies, which Betty said they could if he would do a yoga video with her once a day without pay. He said he would. Of course, the real mystery is where Theo is, she told Quentin in bed that night. He'll come back. I don't know. He has all that money. She pulled the quilt up under her chin. Though it was nowhere near summer, Quentin liked the AC up high. He said it reminded him of Hong Kong. And now another headache. Robert's homework. Why don't you charge Robert for every five minutes you help him? I can't charge him, Betty said. I'm his mother. Mothers should charge, Quentin said, yawning. The next day, Robert ate his cereal without a spoon, with his snout in his bowl. Detective Dog here, reporting for duty, he said. He licked his lips. In this house, dogs eat dog food, Betty warned. Prina puppy chow. Not detective dogs, he said, crunching. Detective dogs eat granola. So why did your sister move to Shanghai? Betty sighed, adding a scoop of vanilla ice cream to her decaf. She used to allow herself this only in the afternoon, but ever since Theo had left, she had been allowing herself to have it in the morning, too. Detective Dog raised his magnifying glass. Why didn't she just move to New York? Betty drank. Slurped, really. 
Because, detective, even if way back when she had married the drummer and become a U.S. citizen, which anyone else would have done, she could have had trouble getting an exit visa. And anyway, she hadn't. She had to hide in China someplace, and so she thought she would hide with her boyfriend's family outside of Shanghai. She had a boyfriend? Betty drank, then answered. He was also a dissident. Played the guitar and apparently knew how to talk to journalists and get them to write things. I guess you could call him a kind of press agent. But his family was originally from this little village, and so the plan was to go live there for a while, to retire from protesting and live a simple life with chickens and a garden. Of course, a lot of the protesters were worried about getting arrested. They were worried they would be tried in a court on the mainland. Some attempted to escape by boat to Taiwan. But she thought that if she and her boyfriend just kept quiet, the government might realize they were done causing trouble. And then she thought she might finally be able to reconnect with her family. She said that it was torture being separated and that she had never imagined we would be separated for this long. And then what happened? Well, the boyfriend's family had no money. So she decided to do some teaching, first in a little school and then in an international school, English language and U.S. history, since she had, after all, studied in the U.S., And these were international kids who could use some history beyond, you know, George Washington and Abe Lincoln. And then? Well, she had a spy in her class. The spy was upfront about sharing things with her father. My father this, my father that, she would say, not to scare Bobby exactly. Really just to say someone is watching. Bobby shrugged it off. She said there were informants in all the classes. So this was Aunt Bobby? Betty started a little but nodded. There it was. She had not meant to say Bobby's name, but she had. The missing one no one talks about? Betty nodded again. Can I have some milkshake? She pushed her coffee forward. It really was practically a milkshake, but with all the melted ice cream. Detective Dog slurped. And so what about the spy, he said. Well, one day Bobby taught Thoreau's essay, Civil Disobedience a famous essay about disobeying the law when your conscience won't let you just go along with it. She did not think this was so sensitive. After all, the point of the discussion was not whether the Chinese should disobey the law. She knew better than to encourage anything like that. The point was how important that idea was to some Americans and how not all Americans agreed with it. And she was cautious. She did not use the word civil disobedience, the file name, for example. She called it Thoreau. Luckily, too, the spy happened to be absent the day she taught the essay. But then the spy came to office hours, and as Bobby explained the essay, the spy recorded her, with the result that she was invited to tea by the authorities. Betty paused. So what's the matter with that? Mm, Tea is never just tea. It's intimidation, which worried her enough that she asked me not to tell anyone, though she wanted me to know. That that they might think she would never stop being a dissident. That they might think she was the kind who would always stoke the fire under the cauldron. The kind who would not only make trouble, but also spread trouble. And then... Biddy got herself another scoop of ice cream. And then? Detective Dog asked again. Well, and then I believe she was arrested. Every now and then, I wrote to her boyfriend and asked if he had written any new songs, and if he had, I asked, were they happy songs or sad songs? He always answered, not too happy. 
Then he asked what you were up to. Changing the subject, you mean. Betty drank. And what about the letter? She startled. Had Robert overheard her and Quentin talking? I have not received a letter, she said. Interesting, he said. She said it again. I have not received a letter. But there was this quick look, and finally she admitted, There was a letter, but I did not receive it because it was torn up. Do you know what it said? As Detective Dog held the magnifying glass up to his face once again, Betty heard Theo. Did you ever speak up? Did you ever tell the truth? Outside, the sirens went on and on. In Shanghai, Bobby told me that she had once written a letter to say goodbye, just in case, and that she had told her boyfriend to make sure we got it if the time came. A last letter, she called it. So was that the letter? I don't know, detective. Why was it torn up? A ghost town. She wished they could all move to a ghost town. I think because Uncle Arnie knew it would break our hearts, she said finally. Uncle Arnie was the messenger. Yes. Also, he maybe knew in his heart that in our hearts we already knew. So why did he tell you that he had it at all? The ambulances, the sirens. Now you know why your grandmother always says no politics, she wanted to say, because that was the moral of the story, no politics. Instead, she said, because some things you cannot keep inside. She watched the strobe lights move along the tops of their window frames. They sped up and slowed and sped up again as Detective Dog pressed his nose to the magnifying glass. Why do you always call me Robert? he asked, his nose flat and distorted. Why do you never call me Bobby? If she wasn't crying, she might have been able to answer. Is it because you promised my mother? he asked. He was still holding up the glass. She was the best of us, Betty managed, the smartest and the bravest was. Robert put down the magnifying glass, pulled at his shirt sleeve, and wiped his eyes on the stretched out material. We actually don't know, she said. We may never know. She tried to hug him, but he struggled away. My name is not Detective Dog, he said, his nose in his shirt. No, she said, and trying to be playful. To begin with, you're a boy, not a dog. My name is Bobby Koo, he said. She was trying to protect you. Maybe Uncle Arnie will tell us where she is. She tried again to hug him, but hugged his shirt more than his small body. And maybe Theo will come back, she said. The Chinese government likes to know all your family members, he said. Yes, and here you are safe, so it worked. But she loved true facts, you know. She spoke up. She wasn't like me. You speak up too, Robert said. But Betty should have heard no, not like Bobby. She was the best of us. And you, she said, you, Detective Dog, are her son.
That was Gish Jen reading her story, Detective Dog. She's been publishing fiction in the magazine since 1990. You can hear more New Yorker fiction read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker apps available from the App Store or from Google Play. On the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, we invite writers to choose stories from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, Ben Lerner reads In the Name of Bobby by Julio Cortazar, translated from the Spanish by Gregory Rabasa. You can subscribe to that and other New Yorker podcasts by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this podcast by rating and reviewing The Writer's Voice in Apple Podcasts. Our theme music is by Jordan Batiste and Ross Michaels of North American Plastics. The Writer's Voice is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.